What's the time? It's time to get ill. What's the time? It's time to get ill. So what's the time? It's time to get ill. Hello, everybody, and welcome to the Illiteracy Podcast. I'm your host, Tim Benson, a senior policy analyst at the Heartland Institute, a national free market think tank. Uh, this is episode like 115, 116, 117, something like that. I never remember the numbers. Uh, so we're not a you know new podcast anymore, but for those of you just tuning in for the first time, basically uh, what this pod- podcast is, what we do here is uh, I invite an author on to discuss a book of theirs that's been uh, newly published or recently published, something we think uh, you guys out, out there would like to hear a conversation about. And then, you know, hopefully at the end of the podcast or even in the middle of the podcast, if you get your druthers about you, you go ahead and uh, purchase the book yourself and give it a read. So if you like this podcast, please consider giving Illiteracy a five-star review at Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to this show, and also by sharing with your friends, as that's the uh, best way to support programming like this. And my guest today is Dr. Frank Castigliola, and Dr. Castigliola is a Board of Trustees Distinguished Professor of History at the University of Connecticut. Uh, You may have seen his writings in Foreign Affairs, the New York Review of Books, the New York Times, the Washington Post, among others, and also scholarly journals such as the Journal of American History, Cold War History, Diplomatic History, and Political Science Quarterly. His books include Roosevelt's uh, Lost Alliances, How Personal Politics Helped Start the Cold War, Awkward Dominion, American Political, Economic, and Cultural Relations with Europe, 1919 to 1933, and France and the United States, the Cold Alliance since World War II. He also edited a volume of George Kennan's diaries entitled, naturally, The Kennan Diaries. And uh, lastly, he is the author of Kennan, A Life Between Worlds, which was published back in January by Princeton University Press and is the book we will be discussing today. So, uh, Dr. Castiglio, thank you very, very much for coming on the podcast. I appreciate it. Well, thank you, Tim, and thank you for that generous uh, introduction. I'm really glad to be here. I'm always happy to talk about Kennan. Ah, no problem. Thank you very much. Okay, so I guess first question um, you know, what uh, What made you want to write this book? What was the genesis of it? Uh, you know, it wasn't too long ago, we were just talking about, uh, you know, just in 2011 that uh, John Lewis Gaddis, the, you know, esteemed historian of the Cold War, he won a Pulitzer uh, for his officially authorized biography of Kennan. Um, you know, Kennan had tapped uh, Dr. Gaddis a long time ago to write that book, and um, you know, I, I guess just coming off the heels, I mean, I, it's been 12 years. It's sort of surprising. It's been some, uh, it's been 12 years since I read that book, but, um, I assumed that would have been the, you know, the final word on Kennan, uh, for a while, but, uh, but apparently not. Yeah, well, <laughs> so how did you well, become, so how did it come about? I've been interested in George Kennan for, for a long time, at least, at least 30 years, um, and, you know, as I edited the diaries, and, and uh, I wrote also a couple of scholarly articles on Ken. And it was clear, that, I mean, I, I think John Gaddis's book is a wonderful book. And uh, it's a unique book because, as he said, uh, as he says in the, in the preface, he w- became companions with George and Annalisa mm-hmm. Kennan, so knew them quite well. And, in fact, I talk about the relationship. One of the things I talk about quite a lot in the last two chapters of my book is the relationship. I analyze the mm-hmm. complex and changing relationship between uh, Kennan and, and Gaddis, which is a story in and of itself. But I felt that, you know, however good, and it is good, John Gaddis's book is, it's not the whole story. Um, 
for a number of reasons. For, for one thing, John Gaddis's book is is more encyclopedic than than analytical, and I mm-hmm. thought there was more explaining that could be done uh, to really get into George Kennan's inner as well as outer outer life. Um, and then there's a lot of sources, even though John tapped many wonderful sources. Uh, and those are available, and I was able to use those. I was able to use the interviews that that he did with Kennan and Kennan's associates. That most of them are now dead. I did other interviews with Kennan's family, but more importantly, I found other archival sources that John Gaddis had not used. Uh, some, and I can talk about that in detail. Uh, and there's a more general kind of reason, and that is that, um, and uh, you know, you'll if those people look at the book will see this that. Uh, Kennan tapped Gaddis to write the authorized biography because uh, Kennan very much liked Gaddis's interpretation of Kennan's role at the end of World War II and the beginning of the Cold War with regard to containment. But after, so that's 46, 47, 48. But as early as the late, even actually as early as late, early 1948, but certainly after 1950, Kennan, and we could talk about this much more, mm-hmm. Kennan became skeptical about um, the way the Cold War was developing, particularly skeptical that U.S. policy seemed to be too militarized. And Kennan regarded containment as an if-then proposition. If the Soviets were contained, if we stopped their expansion, in, in particularly uh, in, in Europe, then we should begin negotiations, we meaning the United States, should begin negotiations to ease tensions and ease and possibly end the Cold War. That's something that Kennan regarded as the major focus of his life from 1950 until the end of the Cold War. And then even after the end of the Cold War, he was opposed to the uh, expansion of NATO, which he thought would ignite another Cold War. But that's something, that project of trying to ease the Cold War and negotiate with the Russians uh, is something that John Gaddis was not that sympathetic with. And so didn't didn't discuss it very much. And when he did discuss it, it was not, you know, it's kind of poo-pooed it. So I felt that to do justice to, to Kennan, and again, what he regarded as the major focus of his life, the second half of his life from 1950 on, um, I thought that Kennan uh, deserved his own biography. But, you know, I think there'll be other books too. I mean, there's mm-hmm. so much material on George F. Kennan, and he's such a complex figure that I'm sure my book is not the last one. Yeah, sure. So uh, I guess we should probably backtrack just a tad. And um, for those of the people out there who uh, don't know <laughs> who George Kennan is or or just have a vague idea uh, who George yeah. Kennan is. So, so who is uh, George Kennan and why are still people – why are people still writing about this guy and talking about this guy? You know, right. Uh, I mean, people people are so writing. I mean, he, and I'll explain who he is in a minute. Sure. But um, there's still in the front page of the New York Times. I mean, I'm, I'm attuned to this. I'd say at least, oh, twice a month, at least George Kennan's name appears on the front page of the New York Times. Someone referring to him in passing, mm-hmm. particularly with regard to containment or, or, or something else. So, okay. So first of all, he's famous for uh, <clears throat> the so-called long telegram which was a telegram sent from when he was in the Moscow embassy in February 1946, and then uh, advocating what became the policy of containment. The idea that the United States, uh, at the end of World War II, beginning of the Cold War, <clears throat> the idea was the United States had a choice. Most Americans thought that if we could not 
cooperate, cooperate with the Russians at the end of World War II, that, the, that a war with them was almost inevitable. Canada was saying no, and this was reassuring, that there was a third alternative, namely containment. If we contained the expansion of the Soviet Union, we could avoid both appeasing them and uh, as you know, accepting their control, namely appeasing them, or going to war with them. And so that was, that was an appealing alternative. And then Kennan, uh, so that, that's a telegram he sent to the State Department, which is widely circulated. In fact, it was circulated to every single American diplomatic post uh, within a few weeks. Mm-hmm. And then in July 1947, Kennan published in Foreign Affairs magazine, uh, the establishment journal with regard to foreign affairs. Um, it was called the Mr. X article. It's called Mr. X because it was published originally anonymously, in which he basically enunciated the, the same containment doctrine. So he's famous for that. Uh, he's also famous as uh, a person who lived a long time, who lived to be 101 years. Uh, he was a public intellectual. Uh, after he left the State Department in the early 1950s, he wrote many, many, many uh, articles in, in, uh, in, in, mag- in magazines like The Atlantic, Harper's, New York Review of Books, published op-eds in The New York Times. Uh, he was a prolific letter writer, wrote tens, literally tens of thousands of, of letters to various people and had wide correspondence. Uh, he gave lectures all over. So he was a public intellectual. He was also known, uh, what, he was really the first kind of establishment figure to uh, come out against the Vietnam War. In February 1966, February 1966, uh, there were televised hearings with regard to the Vietnam War. Uh, they were called by uh, Senator J. William Fulbright, head of the Senate Foreign Relations Committee. And Kennan, dressed in a three-piece suit with a heavy gold chain, kind of the picture of, you know, rectitude, conservative, uh, sober, uh, realism, uh, explained why the containment doctrine didn't apply to Vietnam and that the war in Vietnam was a mistake. It was actually hurting American interests. And that created quite a stir. And then in the 1980s, Kennan was also prominent in terms of um, working in the nuclear, for the nuclear freeze and other efforts to try to uh, limit the, or limit the atomic arms race uh, because there was real, you know, fear of nuclear war in the early 1980s before Gorbachev came in and Reagan turned around and made the end of the Cold War. And then finally, you know, Kennan, in terms of being in the public eye, um, was quite explicit and, and public about his uh, opposition. Is he, he, he feared? He feared the consequences uh, with regard to the expansion of NATO into Eastern Europe and particularly into former domains of the Soviet Union uh, in the 1990s and then early 2000s. Uh, his, his last his last press conference was held in 2003, uh, the spring of 2003, in which he criticized and, and um, said he was it was publicly said he was worried about the. Uh, the second Bush's war in Iraq. So this is a person who has a public career that starts public, known to the public from the 1940s to 2003. He's a person who entered the diplomatic corps in 1926, 1926, uh, and had an extraordinary career up to even up to the end of World War II. So uh, there's a lot. He wrote over 20 books, uh, and uh, he won the Pulitzer Prize twice. He wrote memoirs, a very popular memoir, uh, which was, was a wonderful read, uh, and I could go on and on. But that, he, was a, he was an early environmentalist, uh, a time when that was not uh, a widely shared uh, perspective. Uh, 
and he's also very quirky. We can talk about that too. He had some. He was a person. He was. He was a very admirable person in some ways, but also had some. Was uh, it was prejudice. Bit of a crank. Prejudice in some ways. Yeah. Yeah. Anyway, so okay, let's get uh, into um, Kennan himself then. So, I guess we should probably talk about uh, his birth and his childhood. So his uh, his life starts in tragedy. Um, his mother his mother dies only two months after he is born. Uh, causes unrelated to the pregnancy, unrelated to the delivery. But, yeah, but he Ken, didn't know that. Right, he, he didn't know that, and he's gonna he's gonna right. carry guilt. Over it throughout his life, and then the early years. He he learned later on that, but for his early years. And then the the absence of his mother uh, is going to really scar him in in profound ways. That's true. Uh, I mean, he 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 felt the kind of like the 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 foundational story of his life was the loss of his mother at the age of two months. That's a story that he told. And he told his authorized biographer that story. He stressed that story to to his, his daughters and his other children. Uh, he stressed. He, he told that that when Kennedy went and stressed that in his memoir, when Kennedy wanted to explain who he was, that's the story that he would start with. Um, and 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 it becomes one of the things. One of the things documents sets documents I found uh, illustrated the fact that Kennedy's childhood was. Difficult, not just because he had lost his mother, but also because there was a rift, a sharp rift between his maternal relatives, the, 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 his mother's family, who were wealthy and who adored him and with whom he spent a lot of time, and his father, who was, uh, I can talk about the reasons for that rift, but he was, came from a kind of different socioeconomic class um, and I think the, the mother's family always felt that the father, Kenneth's father, was not good enough for their daughter. Uh, and then there was kind of a, another uh, kind of uh, divisive aspect here. And that at, at the moment when Kenneth's mother, Florence, was dying from appendicitis and, and had a very painful uh, time, uh, her husband was not there. Her husband was not there. So that's something that her family uh, Florence's family, Kenneth's. They thought he family. was out having an affair. Right. So he that's said, what they. Yeah. That's what. That's something that Kenneth told uh, in an, an oral history interview with his uh, a cousin of his. He said that's something Kenneth said for the first time in 2003 mm. when he was 99 years old. Oh wow. He he said that that was something that you know it was talked about when he was young, but he never talked about it. He was a, for a person who wrote so much and had this diary that he kept for 88 years, he was also a private person in certain ways. And as I said, he shared that story only at the age of 99 in 2003. So yeah, I mean, the, the, the mother's family thought that the father, Kent Kennan, uh, was with another woman. I don't know if that's the case. Kent always said he'd been on a hunting trip. But in any case, he wasn't there. Mm-hmm. And, and that added to the rift. And then um, I could. Do you want to talk more about the, the early years here? Or? Yeah, sure. Go ahead. Yeah, okay. So, okay. So, um, so Ken Ken is an interesting person in the sense that he he was certainly intelligent. He was a self-trained lawyer and engineer, um, and he became an expert on the income tax as a as a mode of government raising revenue. Yeah, he's partly to blame for the income tax. Yeah, that's right. Ooh. You blame him. <laughs> um, 
before before the 16th Amendment, yeah. which passed by the to the Constitution, which permitted the U.S. government to, to levy an income tax. And so Ken Kennan studied the income tax as kind of an intellectual subject or a policy subject, and he went to Germany and studied where they had instituted the income tax there. So Ken Kennan was someone who knew about the income tax, and then after the income tax was passed in the United States and the state of Wisconsin also had an income tax, you would think that someone who was an expert in the income tax, think about how our society works today, a lawyer, who, a tax lawyer, right? They're, sure. not, they're not poor people. But Kent Kennan, the, Kent Kennan, George Kennan's father, never made very much money as a, as a tax lawyer or as anything else. And instead, he depended for household expenses, just like the house, you know, the electricity, food, repairs, uh, and then clothing for George and his three older sisters, depended, for most of that income, it depended on that income, depended on the uh, income generated the trust the inheritance. Funds, the, yeah, the trust fund that George and his three sisters had, the money they had inherited from their mother and then from their maternal grandparents, which is odd, odd, and that also increased the sense of uh, the maternal families, Florence's family, that Kent Kennan was kind of a ne'er-do-well, even though he was yeah. accomplished in his own way. And what's, what's, what's interesting to me is that I found in the Milwaukee County probate court records a month-by-month accounting that Kent Kennan submitted to the probate court to justify, you know, to, he had to, this is all legal, to, to explain the monies he had spent and the income he had gotten from the trust funds of his children. Um, and then after the children all reached 21, they they got the money for themselves, and Ken Kennan no longer had that income. And instead, so what he, he and his uh, his wife did, he, he remarried, uh, they took in boarders, and he died uh, he died with, with almost almost penniless. So there's that that element of the, the division between the wealthy maternal uh, relatives and the kind of weird situation with Ken Kenneth's father. And then also the situation that uh, the, the class Kent Kennan married a woman who's uh, an older woman who's kind of a spinsterish type. At least that's how George and the, his sisters saw her. Uh, they, her. She was from Kalamazoo, Michigan, and they called her the, the kangaroo from Kalamazoo. Um, they hated her. <laughs> and she didn't like children very much. She was, in a way, an odd choice for Kent Kennan to marry. cold, cold woman. Yeah, cold, cold, and particularly boys. And she was extreme to say she was uh, prudish too, very prudish, sort of, incredibly yeah. prudish. I mean, she regarded when 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 George and one of his sisters were talking about some puppies who had been born to a neighbor's dog. She was at the talking about at that the dinner table. She took them aside after and said, "You shouldn't talk about things like that." The fact, of course, is the puppies had been born. I mean, that yeah. was <laughs> that was the shocking thing. Um, so. Anyway, they, so they sent George off at the age of 13. They had him skip a grade and sent them off to a military school for problem boys in Delafield, Wisconsin, even though Ken was, George Kennedy was a, kind of a model child. And so he was thrown into a, this military school with rough, a lot of roughneck boys when he was underage and, and uh, smaller than they were. So that was, he, you know, he grew and, and did okay there eventually, but it was a difficult childhood. Yeah, and he's a... Uh... Uh, a bit of a hypochondriac. Um, yes, and yeah. he's, I mean that's one of the other aspects. There's someone who was sick a good part of his life, 
uh, spent had a hard time taking a vacation. So what he would do is get, he would repeatedly break down, kind of just collapse, and check himself into a hospital and kind of relax that way. And you're right. So the hypochondriac lived to be 101. Yeah. So it's yes, yeah, irony there. <laughs> oh, uh, you know what? That's the secret. I don't know. Almost forgot. Why don't you? Because uh, his namesake, or maybe not his namesake, but. Uh, he shares a uh, name, uh, George Kennan, with his grandfather's cousin, I believe, who's uh, uh, somewhat of a uh, renowned, uh, I don't know if travel writer is the, is the great right. word. Well, right. the, actually, the, the, the brief story there is kind of interesting. Before the Atlantic Cable was, was laid successfully in, the, uh, I believe, 1870, uh, they repeatedly the telegraph companies tried to lay a telegraph cable between the United States and Europe and, and England and repeatedly failed. And so the thought was, well, maybe it's not, it's not possible. This technology is not possible to lay a cable under the Atlantic. And so there was an effort to lay a telegraph cable to establish telegraph relations between the United States and, and Western Europe. To do that across the United States, up through Canada, across the Bering Sea, which is shorter than the Atlantic, obviously, and then through Siberia and into Russia and into than Western Europe. And so the, the Western Union Company began uh, uh, planning for that, laying that kind of a cable, and they employed a young man named George Kennan. This is in the 1860s and 70s, uh, actually eight, early 18, late 1860s, uh, named George Kennan, who was dispatched to Siberia and Russia to begin to lay out where this cable would go. And then th th that whole venture was became... Uh, Superfluous when they, but I forget the year, 1869 or something like that, they did lay a cable across the Atlantic Ocean. But that's how George Cannon, the first George Cannon, was born in 1845. The George Cannon here we're talking about was born in 1904. So the first George Cannon uh, became interested in Russia when he was there uh, working to lay out the telegraph line and stayed and um, he traveled and, and, and examined and investigated the czarist prison camps, uh, the camps where the czar, Russian czarist government sent political dissidents or people like, uh, people who became the Bolsheviks, who all spent, spent a lot of their education, really, in Siberia in, in prison camps. Um, so, yeah, and so then he wrote, he wrote about the, the prison, camps, prison camp system. Uh, the first George Kennan uh, published articles and a book on this and lectured widely on Russia. Uh, in the late 1800s, very early 1900s. So this, this George Kennan we're talking about has is George Frost Kennan. Uh, the first one is George George Kennan. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So uh, you talked about his high school years, and he ends up uh, attending Princeton uh, early. I think he gets there in 1921, right? So it's literally like sort of right uh, right after. The, uh, this side of paradise is published. You know, this is we're speaking. You know, this is a podcast for people in the Midwest, and and Ken was very much a, a boy of the Midwest, a young man of the Midwest, and of course Fitzgerald was too. And that that book really um, that really made a big impact on him. Yeah. So um, after he graduates, so so does he have? Any idea what I mean, he wants to do? <laughs> I mean, well, career-wise? He, he thought about becoming a lawyer. You know, this kind of like his father was a lawyer. That was like, you know, a default thing. Uh, but then there was some, he had some 
uh, some of his professors at Princeton and a friend of his father uh, were in the U.S. Foreign Service. And he, he had traveled some, you know, he traveled to Europe between his junior and senior years. And, uh, and also he had spent time in Germany mm -hmm. uh, when he was eight years old, actually learned kind of German in a rudimentary way when his father went to Germany to study the income tax. Um, so the idea of foreign travel was interesting. And so, you know, with, without kind of a, a sense that he's going to become America's most famous diplomat, but just kind of a sense of, well, this is some, something to do. He joined the Foreign Service in 1926. Uh, he would repeatedly resign or think about resigning uh, for every year that he was in the Foreign Service. <laughs> but he joined in 1926. And, and uh, he basically not applied himself very much before that. But mm -hmm. in the Foreign Service, he really did apply himself. And that's another kind of source of records that I found that no one has seen before about what exactly he did. But uh, it, what's important to note here is that he rose in the Foreign Service faster than anyone else in his age cohort. He really mm -hmm. distinguished himself for the volume and the quality of his reporting on all kinds of issues uh, to people back in the State Department. Yeah. So 1929, he goes to, I believe it's the Friedrich Wilhelm University in, in Berlin, and he begins right. studying Russian language, uh, Russian history, Russian culture. Right. And right. this is, uh, I mean, he's been interested in Russia before this. I mean, because of his, his uh, the other George Kennan, uh, right. the, the the famous George Kennan in the family at this point. And yeah. uh, but so this um, this is really going to set him up for his entire subsequent career. This, right. this I, study think, I think you get a good insight into Kennan, Kennan we're talking about his personality. When you really, okay, so he starts formal study in 1929, as you said, at the University of Berlin. And he's part of a, a program, especially like what we today, the State Department called this critical language program, where they take, you know, there's certain languages they think they need, we need to have more speakers uh, of these people familiar with these languages in the State Department. So the State Department funded his study uh, at the University of Berlin. But before Kennedy started that program in 1929, he'd started studying Russian on his own for two mm -hmm. previous years. And was so ready, was conversant to Russian, he could speak it, not without flaws, but he could speak it, he could read it already before he started the course, and he entered something like the second or third year of the program. I mean, he just was accelerated because he'd done all this studying on his own. When Kennan applied himself, he was an indefatigable worker. Mm. Yeah, so while he's in Berlin, um, he meets... Uh, Annalisa Sorensen, who is a Norwegian, um, right. Norwegian woman, they, and they meet and uh, marry in 1931. Uh, so, uh, right. what September is 11th. And, September 11th, 1931? Yeah, September 11th, 1931. Uh, actually, that's my grand, grandfather's birthday, September 11th, 1931. Wow. Uh, but um, so they're gonna they're gonna stay married through until Kenan dies. You know, uh, right. basically, was it 70 years later? Uh, or 80 or yeah about 70 years later so uh what yeah yeah so what is uh what is she like what is their what is their relationship like well um first of all kenan before he married annalise in september um a few months before that like four or five months before that he said you know i really need to get married you know uh i you know i've been dating these not the words i'm paraphrasing here i've been dating you know and, and it's just, you know, I need to settle down. Uh, it, it, my life is too chaotic. And then he meets Annalisa and, and 
and they fall in love and get married. Although I would say that it was it was not the best match in the sense that as, as Kennedy himself, one of the first things he told John Gaddis, he said, you know, you have to realize that my wife is, is not an intellectual woman. Mm-hmm. And so here's Kennan with a person of incredible intelligence. Um, and he married a woman who's was very, was very attractive, uh, was a wonderful hostess, which is important for, for a diplomat, um, who smoothed his life in, in various ways, uh, but was not his intellectual equal. And that, I think, was a source of frustration for him and one of the reasons why the marriage was not perfect. And he had, he had several affairs. Um, and what I, from what I understand, at least some of the reason for those affairs was wanting to be closer to women with whom he felt some kind of intellectual rapport. Um, so, yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and um, Kennan has this, uh, he's a big Freudian, and he has yeah. this belief in uh, in Freud's theory of the tension between eros and civilization. Uh, first of all, uh, I know the the subtitle of the book, Life Between Worlds. I, I you know I pretty much it's pretty obvious that the the two worlds are Russia and the United States. But I was also curious if the two worlds, um, if that was a subtle uh, nod to the to his to his personal <laughs> eros <laughs> civilization battle uh, yeah, that right. he struggles I mean, with. I, yeah, right, right, right. So, you know, it's also, I think it refers to a lot of things. Um, it's also that Kennan sometimes said he really belonged in the 18th century, right, yeah. not the 20th century. Um, and as I say, mentioned in the book, he, he used the word bewilder a lot to refer to himself or, or circumstances. You know, bewildered meaning like, not quite sure where the path is, what you should be doing. For a person who accomplished a lot, he was um, not confused, but I think uncertain or torn in, di- better way to put torn in different directions. So in terms of Freud, like, okay, so we need to emphasize here that Freud was, I mean, who's regarded, I guess as understand the Renaissance now in Freud, but in any case, he was poo-pooed for a long time. But at the time of the early and mid 20th century. He was gospel, basically. Exactly. And yeah. that's how Kenneth saw it. He's even regarded Freudian theories as settled science. Yeah. No, there's no question about it. And so he, 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 and he found kind of um, an affinity for Freud, Freud's uh, concept that there's an inherent dilemma, particularly for men, and Kenneth always regarded the male gender as normative, that there's an inherent, unavoidable dilemma for men between eros, meaning uh, not just sexual freedom, but also creativity, art, uh, just free expression in all kinds of ways, and civilization, meaning duty, family, obligation, the straight and narrow path. And Kenneth felt torn between those two um, poles and two, two impulses. And before he encountered Freud, he, he defined it as he, he felt he was torn between convention and unconvention. Mm-hmm. And so that's one of the interesting things about Kennan is that he's, you know, he's a person who's, he's conflicted and, and pulled in different directions and, and head in one direction and head in another direction. I think maybe, maybe many people feel that way, but he was articulate about it in his diary and, and in other, other writings. Yeah, because he's, um, I mean, we don't know to the extent, uh, you know, when and how often, but... Uh, he makes it pretty clear he's a serial philanderer. <laughs> uh, yeah. And uh, uh, do you think the 
he latched on to that theory as a sort of, um, I guess, a way to, to sort of justify his uh, his stepping out. <laughs> well, on his I, I think, yeah, I think I think that's true to a way. But I think you also Kenan, Kenan, like, was similar in many respects to Reinhold Niebuhr, mm. and they the two. I think they came to similar ideas from independently, uh, but then. Kenner was also influenced by Niebuhr. Mm-hmm. And Niebuhr you know, emphasizes original sin, the idea that, that Kenner put it, uh, mankind is a, is a cracked vessel. You know, so the idea is that people have, you know, you, you can't, people have flaws, you know, to get, you know the whole Garden of Eden sure. story, you know. That, um, and so, so that's the, the era of civilization appealed to Kenner for a variety of things, not just the sexual side, mm-hmm. there's other things as well. You know, he sometimes fantasized about just leaving, leaving his job, leaving everything, and going off and working as a deckhand on a tramp steamer. You know, but just like just cutting out, cutting out for the territories. Right. Yeah. Huck, Lighting out for the huck. territories. Yeah. 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 Right. So, <laughs> yeah. So, yeah. That that appealed. Uh, at least he, he fantasized about doing things that even in his old age. Yeah. He thought, well, you know, when he had all these speaking obligations and and wanted to be a public intellectual, he sometimes said, oh, this is too much. I should just go off to northern Vermont and, you know, have a small little farm and take care of the chickens. And yeah, I mean, I, I, I think that uh, sort of thing is universal. I'm pretty sure every <clears throat> right. every American has thought about, you know, just getting in the car and just taking off right. you know, down the highway. Right. And, he, yeah. and, and he has, you know, he, he did have, he it was a family farm, but he had, he did, have, you know, even when he lived in Princeton or, and in Washington, uh, the family maintained a 252-acre farm in East Berlin, Pennsylvania, where they had a resident farmer there. But it was a, it was a working farm. Yeah, uh, with a fitting farm town too, used. by the way, East Berlin. Pardon? I said a fitting name yeah. for the town too, East Berlin. Yeah, right. I mean, the story is <laughs> some panic official in the State Department uh, reports to his a junior official, of the State Department points out uh, to his superior, "Oh, we just found out Kenan's gone to East Berlin." <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, um, and the other uh, uh, change gears a little bit. The other big influence, or probably the main uh, influence, it seems, uh, on him uh, in this book uh, uh, is uh, the Russian writer and playwright Anton Chekhov, um, right, who right. Uh, he's uh, Kenan absolutely adores, and that the, the farm in East Berlin or near East Berlin uh, he names. Uh, the cherry orchard after after right. the uh, Chekhov right. play. Uh, so right. um, so uh, talk a little bit about uh, Chekhov and and his uh, and his writings and his, uh, their effect on Kennan and also for Kennan's uh, affinity for the Russian people or uh, for and for the Russian soul. I guess uh, he's a he's a very a very strong Russophile. Right. Right. You know, it's it's particularly the nineteenth, late nineteenth, very early twentieth century Russian culture mm-hmm. appealed to him in terms of the music, <clears throat> the uh, uh, literature, ballet, um, all these things. And, and Russian does not Chekhov was his favorite writer, but he 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 was a fan of many other Tolstoy and many other mm-hmm. Russian writers. He, he read widely in in the original in the original uh, Russian literature. <clears throat> um, so it was Chekhov, uh, you know, Chekhov wrote a number of short stories and plays, <clears throat> which emphasized kind of the 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 
peculiar, peculiar kind of both circumstances of like particularly ordinary people who are then who are put in difficult circumstances by forces beyond their control and people who then have to often exhibit kind of ordinary people exhibit a kind of nobility of soul in, in, in trying circumstances or, or people who it's very poignant stories. Okay. Very poignant stories. And Kenan totally fell in love with Chekhov, uh, intended to write a biography of Chekhov, which is, is, this is interesting because Kenan wrote over 20 books. He wrote many, many articles. I mean, you name it, I mean, Kenan has written, wrote about it, but he, he never wrote anything other than a sh- very short article on Chekhov. I think, I think the reason is, even though he did all the research, is that Chekhov was so important to him, in a way so sacred, that I think, I don't have evidence for this, it's just my supposition, that Kenan felt he'd be profaning, profaning the great man by, by writing about him, that you know, it was just too awesome for him to write about. In any case, Kennan did adore Chekhov. And one of the things that he borrowed from Chekhov <clears throat> was Chekhov's uh, insight, which I think is, is an insight, that the basic problem of modern, particularly industrial society, is not that workers were, not, primary, not primarily that workers were exploited by their capitalist bosses, or even that workers were exploited by their communist bosses, but rather that with the very essence or aspect of machine production, of mass production with huge input by machines and people interacting with machines that alienated and stunted the human soul. And Kenneth said, you know, and, and Chekhov put it, he said, industrialization is a mistake, a, great, a, a terrible mistake. And that's an interesting way to look at it, or a terrible misunderstanding of how human beings should relate to each other and how they should relate to their environment. And that's something that Kennan took to heart, and that's one of the, the grounds for his, his own environmentalism, uh, which was basically askance at machine-oriented, industrial, technological uh, uh, society. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so 1934, uh, he finally gets to travel to Russia after he, he meets and impresses uh, William Bullitt, who is the new... Right. Ambassador to the Soviet Union, the, the United States has uh, just recognized the Soviet Union uh, for the first time after its uh, its, its construction um, right. in 1917. So it's been since 1917. So it's been 16 years. Yeah, yeah. From 1917 to 1933. So, yeah, so he, he finally gets to Moscow in 1934, and it's a very uh, heady time in Moscow in 1934. Yeah. You describe, uh, and it left a very lasting impact on Kennan and, or that year left a very lasting impact on Kennan and his, a lot of his fellow, uh, his colleagues in, in the diplomatic corps there in, in Moscow. So uh, tell us a little bit about, about the Soviet Union yeah, in Moscow in 1934. Yeah, it was kind of a magical moment. I mean, kind of an interlude in the period of Stalinist uh, repression that came before a Stalinist, worse Stalinist repression and the purges that came after. Uh, it was after the uh, famine had, had lifted and after the collectivization, uh, which partly led to the famine, was succeeding somewhat so that there's a more abundant food supply. Um, and so, okay, so the Soviet, Soviet Union was afraid in 1933-34 that Japan was going to 
move from Manchuria, which it had just taken over in 1931, that Japan was going to invade Siberia. And so the Russians were almost were desperate, and that's not too strong a word, were desperate for some kind of understanding, perhaps even alliance with the United States. Um, and because the United States itself had kind of tense relations with Japan. So Stalin went all out to welcome Bullet, to welcome Cannon, the other American diplomats, you know, with whatever they wanted, Bullet, you know, Stalin said, whatever you want, call on me. He said to Bullet, call on me day or night. I'm at, I'm at your, you know, I'm at your beck and call because he, he really wanted this kind of close tie with the United States. So that, that, all these factors, the better economic situation, uh, the repression eased up for a variety of reasons. Uh, people who, people like Radek and Bukharin, who had been uh, in, in internal exile, were back in Moscow. They were building the, the Moscow subways, kind of this, this, uh, this, this number of achievements of, of Russian aviators, kind of the frontiers of aviation science. Uh, Harpo Marx came to Moscow in this period in 1934 and put on a number of performances that were, got tremendous acclaim. So it, it's, and also the part of this is also is that, you know, this is at the height of the depression in the mm -hmm. United States and in the, the capitalist world. And for many Americans, who, you know, it seemed that capitalism was, you know, over, that it, it was failed. It, it was a failed ideology, a failed economic system. And people were, had open, were willing to open their eyes to communism, socialism, what the Russians were trying to do as maybe this is the answer to the future. You know, so this is like communism without the kind of repressiveness that we associate with it after, uh, without the Cold War pressures. So this is this is the, the time when when there was so much openness and there were par parties of Russians and Americans, free association of Russians and Americans. Uh, Bullet invited the uh, Bolshoi ballerina dance uh, corps to hang out at the embassy. There were a lot of liaisons between various American diplomats and ballerinas. Um, you know, it was, it was a really open time. Base, uh, Bullet introduced American-style baseball uh, to, to, to the officers in the Red Army. So there's a lot of positive interaction, a lot of flow of energy. And given Kenneth's love for Russian culture, love for the Russian people, he, he was able, he was just like, you know, in, in, in seventh heaven. Um, mm. In fact, it was so intense that he kind of wore himself out yeah. with parties all night, at work during the day, he's a workaholic. Uh, he was, went on a vacation in Norway with Annalisa, his wife's family in Norway in the summer of 34, and he left early, left the vacation early because he couldn't <laughs> wait to get back to Moscow. Um, so there's that kind of real love affair. And then that all ends, it ends in December 34, exactly a year after Kenneth first arrived, when he had the physical and nervous breakdown from exhaustion, and also also that month, December 34, Kirov, Sergei Kirov, who is a top Soviet official, a friend of Stalin, uh, friend slash rival of Stalin, was assassinated. It's unclear how who did that. In any case, Stalin used that assassination. I have a pretty good bet who did it. <laughs> yeah, well, okay. Stalin used that assassination as a... <clears throat> as an uh, excuse to begin the purge of anyone who could have at all been responsible. Also, also the Japanese threat to yeah. Russia eases, and Roosevelt makes clear he's not really interested in an alliance with the Soviet Union. So 
the, the conditions that had led to that honeymoon in 1934, those conditions end. And in fact, Kenneth goes off to Vienna for uh, several months to recover in a sanitarium, uh, recover f- physically and, and mentally. And, 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 uh, and, and it's mm-hmm. run by Freudian, Freudian medical team, and that's where he reads Freud. He's not psychoanalyzed, but that's where one of the places he reads Freud, in Vienna. Yeah. So, you know, we're the yeah. source. Right at the heart there. Uh, but yeah, right. uh, uh, I think it's probably a good idea to point out, though, um, you know, that Kennan and, and Bullet too, I mean, there might have been some members of the State Department or, you know, the embassy staff there uh, that were, uh, you know, sort of pinkos or, uh, you know, uh, uh, supporters of the Bolsheviks. Uh, Kennan's not a communist. He's not a... No, no, he's no, not. Yeah. He's not. I mean, it, but he also was skeptical. He was skeptical of capitalism. He yeah, but, but, but he's not even, he's not even like a fellow traveler when it comes to... No, no, right, no, yeah. not at all. Yeah. Not at all. But he, he thought that, he thought that, there are aspects of a planned economy he thought were a good idea. He thought that capitalism was a little too chaotic, and he disliked advertising, disliked, you know, he, he thought, he subscribed to the theory that a lot of people had, that the, the, the tendency of capitalism is overproduction, and that's the overproduction that led to laying off of factory workers and so forth, and the depression, and this is something that capitalism was just kind of like, a disease of capitalism. So, Kennedy was looking for answers, but mm. he was certainly not a communist, not a fellow traveler, uh, as, especially as those terms later came to be known. As yeah, yeah. I mean, the, there's lots of people in the, uh, especially among uh, sort of the left intellectual set that are uh, totally open to communism and then sort of had their, uh, in the early, in the 20s and early 30s, and then sort of had their eyes opened by the uh, the terror and the, the show trials and the purges and everything. But, right. uh, but right. before we get there, so yeah, you, you mentioned his, uh, his breakdown and his time in Vienna at the sanatorium at the end of 1934. And you write in the book that uh, during his time there, that's when he's going to develop some of the, uh, the concepts, the concerns, the the pattern of thinking that are going to stick with him through the rest of his rest of his life. So, so what were they, what were the, you know, these concepts and concerns and patterns? Well, I'm not sure. Are you referring to his his criticism of American domestic society, or or um, yeah, yeah, that and uh, or his more of his thoughts on uh, on Russia as well. Yeah. Okay. So you know, Ken thinks that. Okay. First of all, that, that communism is maybe a good policy a program for people in Russia, but it's not really exportable, as he sees. It's certainly not suitable for the United States, not suitable for most other countries. But he does think that some aspects of a planned society that are, that are a good idea. Uh, again, this is, you know, you think about mm-hmm. Kenan in terms of order, I mean, the civilization and, and era. So, so it's kind of the planned society, is kind of the civilization side of things, where, you know, you just have order and, and things are at least ostensibly rational. Um, he, but he, he, as, especially when he comes, also, especially when he comes back from, uh, Vienna in, in, it's in, actually in late 19, by this point, late 1935, he's, he's appalled at the repressiveness of, because Stalin's becoming increasingly repressive and people who had been Kennan's friends, the people he'd had Russian friends that he'd gone to parties with, that he'd talked with for long hours. A lot of those people are disappearing or, uh, into the gulag or 
were even executed. Uh, there were the show trials, which, which he attended. And so there are many people in Kenya knew personally who suffered terribly in the purges. And that really, that, that has a, a, a very profound effect on Kenya. As he says in his memoir, published 30 years later in 1967, he says that the, the impact of the purges of the late 1930s is something that still affects me today. You know, that it, it affected his sense that Stalin's regime was, was just bad, you know, mm-hmm. and, 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 and evil, really, that, because it, it perpetrated so much harm to so many good people. And among the good people were the idealistic Bolsheviks who had, who had made the revolution in 1917. I mean, most of the old guard of the Bolshevik revolution was eliminated by Stalin uh, in, in these purges. He also, of course, Stalin also eliminated much of the uh, leadership of the Red Army, mm-hmm. uh, which is one reason that initially the Red Army didn't do very well against either Finland in 1939 or against the Germans in 1941. So, you know, I think it's the purges that really that, that had the, the most impact on, on Kennan's views of the, the bad, bad parts of the Soviet Union, and yeah. especially Stalin. He never really forgives Stalin for the, for the purges. No. No, yeah. So it's uh, so that year, the 1935 and 1936, um, the terror, the show trials, uh, having to report on all that, and uh, this, uh, and report back to Washington, gather information on everything, uh, puts a lot of strain on him, and he finally. He's going to come back to the United States. He becomes chief of the Russia desk for the Division of European Affairs. Right. And he returns to Washington in 1937. Uh, But I guess we should stop stop there for a bit because – talk about his relationship with uh, America, the United States and Americans. Yeah. uh, Because it's it's, uh, funny because he doesn't seem – well, he's obviously not much of a fan of democracy and he doesn't really seem to be that much of a fan – uh, or is openly warm towards Americans as he is towards uh, Russians. And he, uh, there's a sort of a, uh, it seems like a sort of incuriosity uh, about his home country that um, is strange considering how uh, curious he is and um, knowledgeable he is about uh, not just Russia, but uh, you know Europe itself, Germany in particular, um, right. I think you mentioned right. the book. He he didn't even he never even traveled west of the Mississippi River up until, uh, he, you know, he was like in his 1946. yeah, in the 40s and stuff like that. And then, uh, uh, you know, you mentioned the book a couple times that he that he hates California, but you never. I, I wanted to ask you about that actually specifically. Uh, it's mentioned a couple times that he hates California, uh, but it's never you never expand on uh, oh. on it. Why? why? Yeah. So why? So why does why does he hate California? Uh, well, I think it's you know it's the kind of like what he regards as, as the mindless consumerism, <laughs> um, you know, kind of like suburban living. You know, that hot, he it's just like he automobiles. automobiles. Automobiles were kind of like you know they consumed a lot. He was concerned about this. They consumed a lot of petroleum. Uh, wrecked the landscape and roads every place. I mean, that is true. The cities, many cities, particularly well here in the Northeast, have you know have been wrecked by interstates going through the middle of them, wrecking old neighborhoods. Uh, and so California kind of was very much automobile society. Um, you know, he, he, Kenan is you know a funny daddy in certain ways, mm. 
And I think even the climate, he thought the climate of California was too perfect. <laughs> and so, you know, where's the change of seasons? Where's, you know, good, good, honest snow? You know, of course, there are, there's snow in parts of California. But particularly, you know, Los Angeles, he's just like, and also San Francisco, he, he, he visited there in 1946 and thought it was kind of a hotbed of leftist uh, liberal thought uh, that he disliked. And so the consumerism, uh, Hollywood, you know, Hollywood's uh, it lack, you know, the, the hoopla of, of glitz. Okay, glit, Hollywood glitz is something that he, he disliked. Mm. He also, as, again, was a, um, a racist in certain ways and mm. thought that, you know, California really probably should be, it'd be better if we went back to Mexico. Um, <laughs> you know, but it, there was a, too, too Latin in terms of it to, to really be part of the United States. So, there you know, was kind of crazy prejudices, but that's, yeah. this, is, this is a man who c- combined brilliant insights and blinkered prejudice. Um, and but in terms of the, talking earlier about the United States, he he did you know I, I just in the book I describe him as a permanent visitor, mm-hmm. permanent visitor to the United States. Um, the United States he loved, the America he loved was what he imagined America of his youth. He had, he had an America in his mind that he loved, but, I mean, like, the actual right. America, right. he didn't right. seem to right. care for very much. Yeah, well, let me, I think there's a kind of point, in, when he comes back, when he first comes back in 19, I think, you know, it's for a visit. In any case, sometimes either 36 or 37, he goes on a long bike ride, a long bike ride through rural Wisconsin for about 100 miles. And and he talked, to, he has a long diary entry about that. And so, okay, so what does he observe? Well, first of all, he observes that, that, that the people in the small towns he visited, that there's no place in these small towns for people to simply get like the German, like a German local, a German like, you know, saloon or, um, or Russian uh, guest house where people, yeah. where people in villages could kind of get together, have a beer, vodka, whatever, and kind of socialize as he sees it. America is too individualistic. People are spread out. They're in their automobiles. They're, they're in isolated pods. The houses are spread out. The people are spread out. There's lack of community, as he sees it. Um, and as he's a person who kind of romanticizes community, uh, people associating, uh, working in a common cause. Uh, he saw, you know, he saw the United States as being too individualistic, uh, too much governed by advertising, too much. Uh, influenced by consumerism, uh, too superficial, not enough serious thought. I mean, you know, I was there. some of that is true. You know, certainly mm-hmm. more true today in 2023, but it's also kind of reflects his, his idiosyncrasies. Yeah, and he also has this sort of uh, uh, latent authoritarian streak um, that, uh, especially during these years. Um, right, right. And there's right. A... I mean, which I think the authoritarianism, which was kind of moderated a great deal or burned out of it by seeing what authoritarianism did you know, in terms of Nazi rule mm. in Europe in World War II. Um, he kind of was a rebirth of appreciation for American decency. When, when he sees what American GIs are doing in Europe uh, in World War II, um, you know, both before and after D-Day, uh, he you know, has appreciation for the, for the decency of basic decency of American society, which he didn't before. Mm-hmm. I, I don't think he did in the 30s, but by the 1940s, he does. And also, you know, he becomes an important official 
no. uh, in the United States government. And you can't be talking about how you're skeptical about democracy in public and be a, be a public <laughs> right, official. Right. Yeah, so, so he moderates to the Jews. Yeah. Yeah, so he heads back to Europe in 1938. Uh, he gets transferred to Prague. I mean, literally in September 1938, at the height of the Sudeten crisis and right. the Munich conference. Right, right, the Munich crisis, right? Yeah, 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 yeah. So uh, talk, uh, talk a little bit about his, ta- his time in Prague. Uh, yeah, I mean, he, he arrived on the last commercial flight into Prague right before uh, right before the Germans take over the Zuzetenland, those parts of German-speaking areas of Czechoslovakia. And he, 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 and he notes walking in the streets of Prague the first day or so there that he dare not speak any English because the Czechs are so furious at the at Britain and France for abandoning uh, Czechoslovakia and allowing Hitler to take over those territories. Uh, so he's there. He's there from September 38 until um, until September 39. So he sees the Germans steadily advancing, like in March 1939, when the Germans took over the rest of Czechoslovakia. And basically, he's, I don't know if he's forgotten by the State Department, but he's basically, he's in charge in mm. Prague, and the United States no longer has an official minister there, <clears throat> but he's reporting back to Washington about what he sees going on. And it's interesting, I think, that Kennan, you know, as many people thought, that the Germans were going to, they didn't know how extensive the war would be, <clears throat> but many people thought that the Germans were going to win; that they were just too too powerful not to win the war. This because this is if, even before Britain comes in, and certainly before the United States enters the war. Um, <clears throat> so, one of the things that Ken is interested in is the way that the Germans organized the European economy, organized the economy of Europe, the areas they control, to basically create kind of a common market, and he, he sees that. In 1938, 39, and then even more 40, 41. <clears throat> and although he's not, not happy with the Germans controlling all that territory, he sees that this is a model. This is what Europe needs to do. And this is kind of in his mind, uh, 10 years later, or several years later, when he uh, is a big influence in terms of the Marshall Plan. And, the, and, and Kennan influences the U.S. government, which, is, which basically the U.S. government tells the Europeans, if you want this Marshall Plan money, you have to administered on the basis of integrating your economies. Uh, and this is obviously the beginning, one of the beginnings, the impetus is for what became the common market and then the European Union of today. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and then, as you said, he gets transferred to Berlin, uh, essentially right at the outbreak of, of the war. Right. And so, he's, he's gonna, he, so he's going to be there to witness this Nazi juggernaut, uh, you know, steamrolling its way across Europe, and he's there right up to the point where the Germans declare war on the United States a couple days after Pearl Harbor, and right. he's going to be interned uh, <laughs> right. for about half a year by the Germans in uh, uh, Bad Nauheim, uh, outside right. of Frankfurt. Right. Exactly, exactly, right. So he's there, he's there from <clears throat> September 39 until May 42, right? Um yeah, it's in, that's an interesting period. I mean, there are not very many Americans in in Berlin. Uh, this is before, before Pearl Harbor, so we're talking about you know late '39 and all of 1940 and most of '41. And Kennan <clears throat> makes contact with anti-Hitler German uh, aristocrats who want to who are resisting Hitler and are talking about a post-Hitler government. Uh, as there would be something that would be you know. Kind of an aristocratic 
or benign aristocrats, as Kenneth sees it anyway. Mm. But the people who are humanistic um, and who, who would be an alternative to Adolf Hitler. Yeah, he actually wanted... Uh, he wasn't a fan of the unconditional surrender uh, pronouncement by Roosevelt. He actually wanted the Nazis to, or lower-level Nazis, to have to uh, shoulder the blame of the loss of the war, you know, to actually right, sign... Because course, right, because that, that's been, that had been the problem with the Weimar Republic in, yeah. <clears throat> excuse me, in 1919, that the, the, the Kaiser, the imperial government, fled... Uh, in 1918, and stuck the the democratic Weimar Republic with the onus of having to accept right. the Allies' peace. So Kenneth thought that was that was that's what. Under, then Hitler was able to say that the reason we have the Versailles Treaty, yeah. the, uh, the Allies' stab in the back, because and, yeah, yeah. they were stabbing the back. Exactly. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <clears throat> okay. So uh, he's released by the Nazis, comes home, and then he heads right back to Europe. He gets transferred to Lisbon. Uh, right. Which is a uh, you know for all you Casablanca fans out there, it's a you know hot spot for uh, espionage at the time. So he's there as counselor of the legation. So he's the number two in charge, but the number one doesn't really come into the office that much. So basically, Kennan is in charge, and so uh, Kennan gets to spend a bit of time with uh, Antonio de Oliveira Salazar, the uh, right. sort of de facto right. dictator of Portugal. Or the yeah. uh, Portugal, the Portuguese strongman, or however you want to term it, and then Kennan, uh, who Kennan will call his his favorite uh, statesman. So, uh, right. what uh, what does that tell us about about George Kennan that uh, Salazar? Oh, Kennan <clears throat> is no Democrat. I mean, yeah. <laughs> uh, we admire Salazar as, as a Kennan admires elites in a way. Okay, mm-hmm. and he sees. And he admires, he sees Salazar as kind of a person of kind of aristocratic background who is bringing stable, conservative, stable, rational, as he sees it, benign government to Portugal. Uh, So, you know, Salazar is not another Mussolini, not another Hitler. He is an authoritarian, um, has kind of some fascist kind of beliefs in terms of wanting to have an authoritarian government, kind of a paternalistic, you know, having also kind of, you know, men run things, certainly. Um, but Ken sees that as a source of stability. And, you know, it, it, he Salazar is also an intellectual. That appeals to Kennan. Uh, Salazar probably saw Kennan as, as useful, as useful to make friends with this American official, and also that Kennan could talk to him about various, various intellectual things. Uh, so there was a meeting of minds there. And, mm-hmm. uh, yeah, so that's, yeah. And then, of course, Salazar stays in power for many years. Yeah, until the afterwards. 60s, I believe. Yeah, uh, actually, early 70s, I think, yeah. Oh, really? Yeah. Um, well, speaking of statesmen, um, uh, what did he think of uh, Roosevelt, FDR? He got to spend a little bit of time with Roosevelt, not much, but he got to meet him a few times. What, what, did, what did he think of Roosevelt? Uh, oh, I, he didn't like Roosevelt at all. I think, that, you know, Kennan, Kennan did not appreciate the New Deal. He was blind to the achievements of the New Deal. And I think that this is really a clash of temperaments. The FDR is kind of breezy, BS, you know, like, uh, you know, the, the, 
famously Huey Long, the senator from Louisiana, said, you know, you go in to talk to FDR and you're, you're angry about this and that. You want to rip his head off. And you come out whistling Dixie. You know, yeah. FDR could, could schmooze anyone, uh, almost anyone. He couldn't schmooze. Ken, Ken was just kind of turned off mm-hmm. by FDR's kind of uh, bon vivant, you know, dismissal of problems. And that's the way FDR dealt with things. I mean, FDR often came across as way more superficial than it really was. But uh, Kennedy was too, you know, you could see the difference here. Kennedy was very intense and focused and certainly was right. And FDR saw him as the person who was was capable, but too intense and too full of himself. And FDR was really going to take care of whatever the problem was. So there was not a meeting of minds there. And of course, there's there's, there's a huge disparity in rank. Kennedy is a is a mid-level diplomat. He's not a mid-level diplomat. And Roosevelt, obviously, third term already, third term president of the United States. So they never really appreciated each other, never really understood each other. Yeah. <laughs> well, we've already gone about an hour. We haven't even got to the end of the war. Uh, so you can, you can uh, stay for a tad bit longer, can't you, so we can... Sure, sorry. sure. All right, cool. Go ahead. All right, yeah, so... Um, if your audience can put up with it. Yeah, yeah, I mean, I've got nothing to do the rest of the day, so uh, I can go as long as you want, but... Um, so we're, we're sorry. Uh, so yeah. So he gets transferred back to Moscow, and he is there for the end of the war. He's there for VE Day, and uh, more importantly, no, he's there, no, he's there. Oh, yeah, for VE Day, right, yeah. right, right. He, and, he's going back. He's back in July '44. Yeah, and then more importantly, he's really starting to earn a reputation at this point as the country's or one of the premier, or maybe the premier. Uh, Russian strategist, uh, strategist that the that the State Department is going to have. Right. Yeah. Right. Yeah, and then oh, go ahead. Sorry, I thought. Yeah, no, yeah. So I mean, and, and so this is the stage with okay. So there's a lot going on here. Ken comes back to Moscow in July '44. He, he left in '37, and he's initially just in love again with Russian people, Russian culture. You know, just, he said, just walking down the streets and seeing them, smelling them, uh, you know, hearing their conversations. It's just, he said, I just like to kind of, you know, meld into this society um, and just, and just, you know, kind of breathe it all in, so to speak. Uh, but then the secret police intervene and, you know, he cannot have kind of close contact with, with the Russian people. He could, he could watch them on the streets and smell them all he wants, but he can't really engage them in conversations. And that he takes that very, very bitter about that. Takes he's it personally, also, in a way. Yeah, he does take it personally. He does yeah. take it personally. And he, so he's, you know, and he, he's, um, and he sees, okay, so it's the secret police who are, who are clamping down and restricting the ability of the Russian people to do all kinds of things. And then the way Kennan interprets the uh, expansion of, of the Red Army rolls the Germans back from. Poland and Hungary and all these areas, and, and installs pro-Russian governments, Kennedy sees this as the extension of the secret police, extension of the secret police regime that had also perpetrated the purges, you know, back in the late 1930s, where all his friends, had, or many of his Russian friends, had been executed or, or exiled. So, so there's, there's a strong anti-Soviet government feeling on the part of Kennedy. And then there's also Kennedy as these this, again, July 44, and he's in, he's in Moscow until uh, May 46. 
he's also angry at the U.S. government, who is not taking him as seriously as he would like. He he was he was kind of really resentful of the, the fact that he was not invited to come to Yalta and be mm-hmm. one of the FDR's advisors at Yalta in February 1945, and said, as he put, he was parked parked in Moscow and no one seemed to care at all what George F. Kennan thought about the issues involved. He sent a long letter, Kennan sent a long letter to his friend Chip Boland, who was at Yalta as an interpreter for FDR, basically laying out what the policy that Kennan thought FDR should follow. You know, if there's a, if there's a, if there's a crisis in the, in the conference, Kennan's thinking was, well, maybe Boland could lay out these ideas from his friend George Kennan, who's in Moscow. So Kennan figures that he, he should be an advisor. He knows enough. He's smart enough. He, sh- he knows the Russians well enough. He should be a major advisor, but he's not at this point. Um, so th- th- all this is leading up to uh, early 1946, when, uh, as, by which time Roosevelt has died, U.S. relations with the Soviet Union are turning more and more sour. The U.S. is more and more upset with the Russians, what the Russians are doing in Poland and other countries of Eastern Europe. And, and Stalin gives a speech on February 9th, 1946, basically laying out a very ideological interpretation of World War II, saying and kind of downplaying American and British aid and talking about the primacy of the Communist Party. Even downplays, Stalin even down, downplays the role of the Red Army in winning World War II. It's a very ideological speech. So Kennan's friends in the State Department, knowing that Kennan is angry at the Soviets, angry at the U.S. government, kind of frustrated and now being in, having been in Moscow for more than two years, or yeah, almost two years, um, ask him, ask Kennan, give us your interpretation of this speech, because they know Kennan is like a a rubber band that's tightly, yeah, you know, wound. He's going to explode. So Ken, that's when Kennan writes the long telegram, or dictates the long telegram to this long-suffering secretary. And of course, it's February twenty-second, nineteen forty-six. Which is which was on Friday, uh, which back in the day when uh, we celebrated president, actual president's birthdays, not President's Day. It was Washington's, Washington's birthday, birthday yeah. and Lincoln's birthday. So that was Washington's birthday, and so she wanted to go on her weekend. And Kennan said, "No, I want you to stay here, and I'm going to dictate this telegram, this almost six thousand word telegram, uh, in which he lays out his reasons for why we need to contain the Russians and so forth." And there's kind of a Did- psychological. Element here. This is one, yeah. one kind of psychological element that you know. This is a political statement, a, a political or a political document, the long telegram. But there's also a personal side because Kennan felt that the Russians, Russians, the Soviet government, the Soviet government had isolated him, contained him, and prevented him from having contact with the Russian people, and now he was going to retaliate in a way by advocating that the United States government contain and isolate the Soviet Union. Now, yeah. I don't want to say that this personal side is the tail wagging the dog, but it's <laughs> one of the factors. It's one of the factors. Yeah. Before we get into uh, what the long telegram said and, and what its import was, uh, did do you know, did he uh, did he write any drafts of that before he you know sort of <laughs> Shanghai no, the Shanghai so. the secretary no. into uh, so no, he was just doing this off the cuff pretty much. Yeah, he yeah, that, and it was in, it was in five parts, you know, just like yeah. laid out. Um, but I mean, other uh, secretaries down down, you know, later years said that he was he was amazing in terms of being able to dictate a a very coherent statement from scratch, and also 
Kenan's, if you read, if you look at Kenan's diary, the, the, the diary I, I edited, mm-hmm. uh, or it was articles, Kenan could write, it was a beautiful prose writer, just mm-hmm. absolutely beautiful. He could have, sometimes had a sentence that was a half a page, or even a page long, a single sentence that somehow hung together, flowed beautifully. I mean, he, he was a, a prose, brilliant as a prose stylist. Uh, so I said this, secretaries in later years would say that Kevin could be dictating a letter or an article or something uh, or lecture and then he'd be interrupted by a phone call in a completely different matter and, and the phone call ended he'd go back to where he led or left off and continue in a perfectly logical uh, mm. continuation of the, what he was dictating so he was certainly gifted when it came to that yeah so the long telegram uh, what's its effect on the, the foreign policy establishment it uh, seems like it sort of uh, it sort of crystallizes what uh, what the establishment seems to be leaning toward uh, anyway, sort of like putting a voice to uh, sort of more yeah, that's exactly incoherent. It. Yeah, as, as, as many things are, you know, there are many things, many statements that we regard as iconic statements, but they really they become iconic statements because they synthesize and put into elegant form ideas that are in the air so they yeah, they, they, they capture the back. zeitgeist right right exactly <laughs> exactly 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 so yeah that's what so kenneth provided the intellectual justification for america what was already evolving toward america's already evolving policy of containment of, of the soviet union um and it, it was spread kenneth had, had a champion and secretary of the navy james forrestal who saw this telegram early on he invited Truman and the other members of the cabinet to read it. And on March, so this, it was dictated February 22nd, 1946. On March 5th, it's a coincidence, but on March 5th is the day that, 46, the day that Winston Churchill gave his uh, Iron Curtain speech. Mm-hmm. Uh, and coincidentally, on that day, March 5th, the State Department sent a long telegram to every single American diplomatic post around the world. So mm-hmm. it was very widely read, and people praised its... Uh, for being this this very influential, succinct, uh, persuasive, eloquent statement, mm-hmm. it, it, it's kind of extremist language, which is kind of which embarrassed Kenan Kenan in later years, but um, it certainly had an impact. Yeah, uh, you mentioned Forrestal. Uh, Forrestal becomes a champion of Kenan. Uh, right. Basically, gets him a job at the. National War College, uh, I guess right. his deputy of foreign affairs there. So he comes back to America one more time, and it's at the the War College that he's going to write the the other uh, big article that he's known for, the sort of the, the twin of the the long telegram. And that's the, uh, the the quote unquote the X article or the the, the right. sources of Soviet conduct, which is the actual uh, title right. of the article, which appears in Foreign Affairs in 1947, July 1947, I believe. And uh, again, so um, uh, again, what's what is the import of the of the X article? Uh, you know, what did it say? There are some differences between X and, and the uh, mm. X article, the long telegram. But basically, uh, the, the long telegram spread the message or doctrine of containment to the U.S. government, um, and then and then the Mister X article, you know, publicized that to. The educated public, and so, and, and it, it was uh, Arthur Crock, who was an important columnist for the New York Times, uh, 
broke the story that it was really George F. Kennan, who was an official in the State Department, who wrote the Mr. X article. So that then Kennan's name really became known throughout the country for the first time. And it was, you know, it was discussed in Life magazine, Reader's Digest, Look, and so forth. It was, it was a hot uh, topic of discussion that this is America's new policy toward the Soviet Union. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and then another one of his admirers, I guess, is, is uh, General George Marshall, um, who is now uh, Secretary of State, I believe. And yes. he is going to – he taps Kennan to basically create and run the policy planning staff. Kennan is the literally the guy who assembles that and puts it together. And right. as you, and as you, yeah, and as you mentioned right. earlier, he's going to play a key role in – in drafting the Marshall Plan. Right. right. So you think about this. It, this is like 1947, May 47. Kennan is now, a year earlier, he'd been basically an unknown guy in Moscow. Yeah. Now he's head of the policy planning staff uh, with the purview of all the U.S. foreign policy, and his office is next to, to that of the Secretary of State. So it's, it's an enormous, and he's 43 years old. So it's, it's an enormous jump in terms of his status. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but by the end of the decade, he's already uh, he's already backing away from you know, quote unquote containment. Right. I mean, it, to me, it's striking. The first enunciation of this is February 1948. I mean, so it's, uh, just six months after the long tel- after the Mr. X article, uh, in February 48, the private you know member within the State Department he says, well, you know. You know, if this if this Marshall Plan bill pl- passes, it doesn't even pass it. If this Marshall Plan bill passes and Western Europe begins to recover, you know, the Soviets are contained. Uh, we should think about negotiating on some issues, particularly Germany, where which is a contentious issue, uh, trying to resolve tensions over who is going to run Germany. So, I, I think, you know, in a way, as I said at the beginning of the podcast, for Kennan, containment was always an if-then proposition. Right. If you contain the Russians, then you should move to a negotiation. And part of it, I think, it, you know, it's, it's, this is supposition on my part. Part of it is that Kennan, you know, loved the Russian people, disliked, in some respects, hated the Soviet government, but the government of the Russian people is the Soviet government. And there's a way in which, you know, he's kind of drawn toward wanting to negotiate, wanting to settle, ease tensions with the government of of Russia. Mm. Yeah, and so, like I said, he's backing away from containment at this point, uh, but a couple yeah, of years later... I mean, yeah. we don't exaggerate that too yeah. much. He still yeah. you know, has the policy planning staff and stuff, right. but he you know, begins to temper, temper, uh, I mean, he still does stuff that he works... This yeah, it, I mean, it's a gradual, it's a gradual right. uh, process, right. but, but in uh, 1952, sort of the... Uh, the culmination of his career, everything he ever wanted, he uh, is be- going to become ambassador to the Soviet Union. <laughs> and his time as, an, as ambassador is very short-lived and essentially uh, a complete and utter uh, failure. Uh, so uh, yeah, tell us... It really tell, blows it. It yeah, really blows yeah. it. Yeah, so uh, sort of uh, tell us about you know what happens, how he, how he sort okay. of screws the pooch yeah. so bad. Right, right. So... Kennan was, because this the Korean War is still going on. Uh, there are people in the Pentagon talking, people in the Pentagon talking about preemptive war against the Soviet Union before the Russians have an atomic bomb, but before they can develop a hydrogen bomb. 
um, <clears throat> before they build more atomic bombs. So people talking about preemptive war. Uh, as I said, the Korean War is still going on. There's tensions between the United States and Russia over Germany, over Japan, um, other areas. And Ken is worried about this, a war. This will result in a war, a nuclear war or atomic war. Um, and so he, go, he goes to Moscow as ambassador, and this is he goes. This is May 1952. So the, the calendar here is May 52. The November 52 elections are coming up in six months, and in January 53, regardless of who wins the presidential election, because Truman is not running, there's going to be a new administration. Mm-hmm. So Kennedy figures that he's going to be ambassador for figures at least two or three years. And this is his opportunity to try to jumpstart diplomacy between the United States and the Soviet Union. The problem is, uh, the two problems, one, the main problem is that the Truman administration and Dean Acheson, the Secretary of State, is not interested in negotiating with the Soviet Union. What the uh, the Truman administration is interested in is nailing down um, the rearmament of West Germany and integrating Germany into into the NATO alliance. That's what the, the that's what the Truman administration wants to do. In fact, an easing of tensions with Russia would take the pressure off of the French and Belgians and British and others who are reluctant to see West Germany rearm. But Truman administration would say this is a necessity because the Cold War tensions. Look what the Russians did in Korea and so forth. Mm-hmm. So. Kennedy wants to ease Cold War tensions. His bosses are not interested in that. So he has, he has very little to work with. Um, there's some indication, there's some indication that Stalin was interested in the deal over Germany to establish a neutral, disarmed Germany, reunified Germany. Because Stalin, as the Russians in general, were worried about a rearmed West Germany because they were afraid a rearmed West Germany would be able to tap America's nuclear might and the West Germans would, you know, bent on revenge, would perpetrate a third invasion, a third war on Russia in the 20th century. That was a main Russian fear throughout throughout the Cold War, that somehow Germany would uh, be able to get American backing for a war of revenge against Russia. Mm-hmm. So the prospect of the Americans rearming West Germany is something that Stalin was anxious to prevent. And, and said that publicly, Kennan hoped that he could somehow get in, get in there and begin conversations about some kind of a deal to reunify Germany rather than rearm West Germany and, um, and ease tensions between Russia and the United States. Um, that never really doesn't work out for a variety of reasons. Um, he, also, Stalin is in the last months of his life. Stalin is... Uh, was certainly sane during World War II, but is becoming seriously paranoid. There's a doctor's plot in in Moscow where a number of Kremlin doctors are accused of treason and executed and stuff. So it's a it's a tense time in Moscow. And a long story short, Kennedy arrives in May, um, and by September. 1952 is convinced that he's not going to be able to bring about any kind of diplomacy, any kind of uh, easing of tensions between Russia and the United States. And it's unclear how exactly his mind was working, but 
when a he, he has a meeting, he has a meeting in, in September 52, a meeting in London, and he's flying from Moscow through Berlin to London. And in Berlin, a reporter, a little press conference, a reporter asks, asks Kennan, well, what's life like in Moscow? Do you socialize a lot with Russians? And this is, you know, of course, Kennan for years now has been, <laughs> you know, eight, since 1934. Yeah. He's been incredibly upset about the fact that no, we cannot negotiate. And then she did not uh, socialize with Russians. And so he kind of basically loses his temper, loses his cool, loses his diplomatic uh, bearing and, and good sense. It says, well, do you know what it's like? You know, in, in Moscow, he said, it's more restrictive in Moscow than it was when I was in Berlin uh, during the first parts of World War II. Yeah, um, that's so good. So, and Kenneth says it's in Berlin. So basically, says the Soviet Union is worse than Nazi Germany in Berlin, you know, the former Nazi capital. Yeah. And that, that's right. something that the, the Soviets uh, are very uh, um, uh, self-conscious about <laughs> because, they, I mean, uh, right. they know the extent of their own crimes and they know their sort of de facto alliance with the Nazis, uh, right. 39 right. through 41 and all that. And so that hits a little too close to home for them. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. And, you know, and as some officials later told another American, look, you know, it was the point he, he said this in Berlin. We, we just couldn't accept yeah, it. Yeah. Yeah. So, so they declared Kennedy persona non grata, meaning he's not welcome to return to Russia. The only American ambassador down to today, the only American ambassador ever to be declared persona non grata, because we have an ambassador there now. The only American ambassador ever to be declared persona non grata since 1776 or 1789. Um, and that did that no, decision he, came that decision came directly from Stalin. Yeah, what they think, right? Right, right. Yeah. right. And and then and it's also the Truman administration and other people at the State Department say, you know, what's wrong with Kennedy? I mean, because it's it's such a a betrayal of his. He's a savvy diplomat. He's been yeah. a savvy diplomat for for a quarter century. You don't it's, say things, even if you think it. You don't say it, and you don't. If you do say it, you say it's off the record. Right. He didn't say it was off the record. Yeah, I mean, so, basically every, even like the most low level, uh, you know, like a diplomatic intern or something like that would know right, not right. to say that. And it's just, it's just right. so uncharacteristically. Um, dumb of him <laughs> you right. Know? right but yeah. you know i think he, he lost it at that point i think yeah. as i said at various times Kennan would break down this was in a sense a breaking down mm-hmm. yeah and then for the so uh essentially gets recalled and then for the rest of his life you know expect for a short stint as ambassador to yugoslavia for jfk in the early 60s Right. Uh, basically, he's going to be on the outside looking in from this point forward, and you know he has no real. Uh, I mean, for the next 50 years of his life, he's not going to have any real impact or say on American foreign policy from you know sort of inside the tent. Yeah, from inside the tent, but he he does have an impact from outside the tent. Yes, but in like an actual decision making, he's not going to be. Uh, I mean, he's not going to have that much of an impact. So he gets home. And he joins the Institute for Advanced Study at Princeton, uh, where he's right. going to remain for the rest of his life. And, uh, you know, he finds a nice home there. Uh, he writes, Russia leaves the war uh, in 1956. Uh, it's a, a book that basically wins I mean, just about every award. He gets the Pulitzer right. National Book Award, I think, uh, Bancroft Prize. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I mean, all the biggies. 
And uh, I might add, for our listeners out there, I didn't know this until last night when I was typing up my notes, but um, uh, Russia Leads the War has recently been republished by Princeton University Press, obviously to coincide <laughs> with uh, yeah. the publication of your book, and uh, you wrote the, the foreword for it. And I'm, I'm sort of mad at myself that I missed that. And, yeah, uh, what's, I, <laughs> what's, interesting, what's interesting about that is in writing the... Well, I, I visited the Kennan farm. Mm-hmm. Uh, Joan, Joan Kennan, Kennan's, one of his daughters, very kindly invited my wife and myself to visit the Kennan farm a number of years ago, like five, six years ago. And um, and Joan said, well, she's cleaning up stuff. She said, well, take anything you want. So one of the things I took was the typescript, typescript for that book, Russia Leaves the War. And in the typescript, which was in a folder, mm-hmm. was an unpublished epilogue, yeah. wow. that, which kind of like, kind of re- well, the forward talks about this, but it kind of reconfigures what Kennan's take in the book is. It's, it's, it's kind of interesting. The epilogue was not published, but it's revealing, I think, of of, of, of Kennan in some ways. So anyway, that's an interesting thing in, in the forward. Yeah, it would have been nice if they would have put that in the press release for your book when I got that a few yeah. months ago, because I totally missed it. And I should have asked Princeton for a copy, but yeah, you know, because I would have loved to have read it before the before the interview, but I literally didn't even know about it until, until last night. Yeah. Um, but anyway, so another uh, sort of uh, weird. Uh, <laughs> so he he has a little a mini flirtation uh, during the mid fifties and late fifties of uh, running for office, uh, flirtation with politics twice. 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 Yeah, yeah, twice. twice. And um, it doesn't seem like he's a natural politician or someone who's suited even if he's elected for that kind of uh for the job of either a congressman or a senator uh which is you know the two times he he thinks about running he thinks about once running for the uh yeah people because people come to him and and say we want you to run i mean that's yeah 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 but i mean the only reason literally it seems like the only reason he didn't have a go at it was because of a lack of money Really, I mean, right. like he couldn't. That's right. He it's, couldn't. He couldn't afford to, essentially. Right, and and his, his salary at the institute would have been terminated. And yeah. Ken was not the kind of didn't want to have to go out and, and grub for money. Yeah, um, he had, yeah. I mean, he had kids in college at that point, you know, and <laughs> weddings to pay for and all that stuff. Right. Yeah, but I mean, I it's I I kind of wish he would have run at least once just to see how that would have went. <laughs> right. <laughs> he, he had the idea that he would be kind of like. I think the way his mind, like the Russian Russian gentry member mm-hmm. of parliament, you know, just kind of like almost like hereditary. Yeah, yeah. Know, by 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 right of his ability, by by virtue of his ability and, and his intellect, that you know he would become a member of Congress or or, or a senator. Um, yeah, I mean it's, it's but you know even like his, people close to his family and stuff. Family members close to him thought that was a crazy idea, but he was attracted to it. <laughs> yeah. He was. It was significant is that he was very attracted to it. It caught his imagination. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so getting into the '60s and in the mid '60s, you, know, you mentioned his opposition to uh, the war in Vietnam, his early opposition to the war in 1966. Um, but just because he's an opponent of the Vietnam War, and even though he will um, sort of endorse. Gene McCarthy uh, in his run right. for president in 1968. Uh, even though he'll do that, he's not a he's not a fan of the counterculture. 
not he's not really a fan of the the student radicals and the new left no, you know, or the or the new le- them, or yeah. the new left historians that are uh, gonna really start popping up at this point and right. sort of uh, with the revisionist sort of uh, sort of uh, picking apart of his um, of his legacy from right. the you know, the late 1940s right right Right. I mean, I think he saw a disorder, disorder. And also he is, you know, he had a son who um, kind of fit some of the stereotypes of the you know, radically anti-war protesters, um, you know, late teenage son. So I, I think it was all a little too personal, a little too kind of disturbed the sense of decorum. You know, as he put it, mm-hmm. to see people barefoot. Long-haired students in the Princeton University Library upset him. Yeah, yeah. So, all right. Well, we've gone really, really long, and and you know, there's still a lot to do. But let's. I guess we'll just sort of shift ahead and yeah. all the way to the end of uh, the Cold War. How did uh, how did he react to to the end of the Cold War, the fall of the Berlin Wall, and you know, and the later the dissolution of the Soviet Union, and then what was uh, what was his advice at that time on how uh, how the United States should sort of handle Europe in a post Cold War world, how the United States handled Europe and, and Russia, yeah, and I mean, the, the former Soviet of, Union. I mean, one of the things, that, one of the reasons the Mister X article was was significant is that it kind of predicted this Soviet power would eventually moderate or collapse. And then when Soviet power did collapse in 1991, it was like, he's a prophet, you know, there's just like mm-hmm. more and more attention. But it's interesting that Kennan himself was, for him, it was kind of anticlimactic. He thought that, Kennan thought that because, you know, he'd been advocating easing of the Cold War for decades. Kennan thought that the Soviet Union as a, antagonist of the United States, or the antagonistic aspect of Russia's relationship to the United States, the antagonistic aspect went on longer than it should have or could have if the United States had been more ready to negotiate. In other words, the, the, the Cold War had been needlessly prolonged, needlessly prolonged. And so when, when the Cold War finally did end, he was not, he was not thrilled. Um, he, he also was not thrilled about the dissolution of the Soviet Union. He thought that, that uh, there were all kinds of separatist movements would just keep on unraveling further and further, and that he thought he saw this as leading to chaos. Um, also, he was worried about what would happen to Russia's nuclear uh, arsenal. Uh, he was, he was, I think he was in some respects a Russian nationalist, and that he thought that, for instance, Ukraine, he thought Ukraine really is part of Russia. Um, he, I really, he grossly underestimated the strength of Ukrainian nationalism, which we're seeing today. Mm-hmm. But he thought that Ukraine should be well, the best thing was to be part of Russia, a more, demo, a more democratic government, but part of Russia. And in particular, Kennan thought that the expansion of NATO eastward was dangerous and foolhardy. It, it, this is in the 1990s mm-hmm. when Russia was a precarious democracy, because Kennan thought the expansion of NATO eastward would uh, antagonize Russians, undermine the appeal of democracy, increase the appeal of renewed militarism in Russia, and and lead to another Cold War. Uh, and of course, he was right w- with regard to that. However much we think Eastern European countries 
uh, may, of course, we can understand why they would like to join NATO, but Kenneth thought it would be disruptive of U.S. relations with Russia. And what he really favored, rather than expanding NATO eastward, what Kenneth favored, which a lot of other people also favored, very moderate people in the U.S. government, senators and so forth, was a, since the Warsaw Pact, the Russian Cold War alliance ended, that NATO also should be disbanded, and the, and the two pacts should be replaced with a European-wide security organization, which the United States would join, a European-wide security organization that would integrate, actually integrate Russia into the rest of Europe. That's what he thought was the best hope for actual peace and stability. Okay. All right. Uh, well, uh, I guess just wrapping up then, uh, the rest of his life, you mentioned his um, his opposition. Well, uh, he's skeptical of the... Uh, I don't know if he was an opponent. I can't remember if he was an opponent of, uh, of the uh, invasion of Afghanistan. He thought it was a mistake. Yes. Especially to change, to change the government, to try to change the government of Afghanistan. He thought that was a fool's errand. Yes. And then also he's a, uh, right before his death, he's a vocal critic of, the, uh, of our uh, invasion of Iraq as well. Right. That's correct. Yeah. So... And then, uh, you know, he's finally 101, <laughs> 101 right. years old. He's finally going to, uh, he's finally going to pass away in in 2005. And maybe uh, John Lewis Gaddis breathed a sigh of relief at that point that you know he could finally uh, get that uh, biography that he had been, uh, you know, uh, contracted to write for like at least yeah. 30 years. He could finally get that out the door. Because uh, that yeah. was uh, Kennan's big fear that uh, Gaddis was going to, that he was living so long uh, that that Gaddis was going to <laughs> lose interest in writing right. the book, or you know, yeah. or or he was going to even outlive Gaddis, or you know, right. something right. like that, and that yeah. that the person you know he expected to sort of explain him, uh, or that he felt the the most comfortable you know uh, uh, writing on his life <laughs> would. Uh, not be able to do the biography. Right. He was worried about what he called inadequate pens, inadequate pens taking up the task of writing about him. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And he would just sort of apologize to Gaddis for, you know, like, sorry, I'm I'm still alive. Like, you know, eventually one day we'll get there. But anyway, um, so uh, we've gone real long. I I won't keep you much longer. I'll just ask you one last uh, question. Uh, the question I ask uh, everybody uh, when they come on here, the last question, um, and that's essentially, you know, what would you like the what would you like the audience to get out of this book, or you know, what's the one thing you'd want a reader uh, to take away from them having having read the book? Okay, so I, I'm thinking that maybe readers or, 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 or listeners now will think, my God, this person is so weird. I don't, I'm not interested <laughs> in reading that, but. I, I think, you know, Kenneth is a fascinating person. Mm-hmm. He, you know, he's, he's weird. He is weird, but he did have insights into many different things. Um, and in a way, he's a, he's a person from another time. Uh, maybe he seemed like a person from another planet. But he, he, because, because he views our society from the outside, he is perceptive 
about many issues. It's just like as an artist really needs to be alienated to really have some kind of like real insights. Mm -hmm. I think Kennan is, is in many respects an artist, a poet, um, whose, whose life itself is interesting, uh, did many different things, and is a, as thoughtful and uh, has some things, some lessons for us, I think, even today in 2023. All right, great. Uh, well, is there uh, before we go? Is there anything else you wanna uh, you wanna plug uh, while while you're here? Any anything coming up? Any uh, appearances or social well, media or anything I, or anything like that? I have some talks here and there, but most of the stuff is all all, all online nowadays. So, um, but thank you for this opportunity. I really appreciate it. Oh no, no, uh, my pleasure. Uh, absolutely, it was a a. Um, a really fantastic book. Um, uh, like you said, uh, Kennan's kind of an odd character. He's, um, you know, it's not like reading about, say, Churchill or, or Lincoln or somebody like that, where it's kind of uh, fun <laughs> to be in their presence, you know, to spend the time, spend the time with them. Uh, Kennan's not that sort of guy, but he's a fascinating character. Uh, and the book is not... Uh, uh, you know, by any stretch of the imagination, uh, boring or hard to read or anything like that. It's a fantastic, fantastic read about a about a, a supremely interesting uh, person who had a, uh, I guess you'd say, an outsized uh, hand in shaping, uh, briefly for shaping American uh, foreign policy for you know half a century. And is sort of uh, legendary in uh, diplomatic circles or you know foreign policy circles and uh, for you know students of that sort of thing. So it's a a, a, a wise person in many respects. Yes. A wise, flawed, flawed, but a wise person. Yes. So yeah. So if you're out there, uh, make sure you go out and get the book. It's called Kennan, uh, Life Between Worlds. And if you're feeling frisky, you might as well go out and uh, pick up Russia Leaves the War too with the new. Uh, the new introduction. I'm going to have to do that after the, after the podcast. But anyway, yes. So again, the uh, the book is Kennan, A Life Between Worlds. The author, uh, Dr. Frank Castigliola. And so, Dr. Castigliola, thank you so so much for coming on the podcast and for staying a little long with me and talking all things sure. George Kennan. And I really really appreciate uh, really really appreciate you coming on. And and thank you very much for you know taking the time to write this book. <laughs> so, sure. No, okay. All right. all right. Thank you very much. Thank you. And, no problem. Yep. and again, if you like this podcast, please consider leaving us a five-star review and sharing with your friends. And if you have books you'd like to discuss with us on this podcast, or if you have any questions or concerns or anything like that, or comments, you can always reach out to me at tbenson and heartland.org. That's a T-B-E-N-S-O-N and heartland.org. And for more information about the Heartland Institute, you can just go to heartland.org. And we also have our Twitter account for the podcast, so you can also reach out or, you know, uh, check us out there for updates and stuff like that. Uh, our Twitter handle is at illbooks, at I-L-L books. So make sure you give us a follow. And again, if you have any questions or comments or anything like that, you know, feel free to send us a DM while you're there. And uh, yeah, that's pretty much it. So uh, thanks for listening, everyone. We'll see you guys next time. Take care. Love you, Robbie. Love you, Mom. Bye-bye.